0: they put on their USC jersey and their USC hat and they tailgate and somebody scores and there's high fives and uh, imagine the very next day that same group that you were tailgating with says, hey, give me your jersey, give me your hat, you can't come to the tailgate anymore. And so that's what it's like leaving the service because you have your uniform, which is your jersey and your hat and that's your team. But when you leave the service, you keep those friends, but you're not in that unit anymore and there's this period of being lost. one path is a long
1: winding unpaved back breaking bumpy miserable road to a place called success the other road is straight paved smooth comfortable and that road ends up in a place called failure welcome to the show i am kyle matthews on the matthews mentality podcast where we dive into the mindset of the world's most driven founders ceos business moguls athletes and entrepreneurs each episode will turn our guest wisdom into practical advice that will help you build a deeper understanding of what led them to success and the mentality behind what got them there. Let's get started. Welcome to the Matthews Mentality Podcast. Today, I'm here with Scott Carvet. Scott is a professional pilot and is on the board of directors for the Blue Angel Foundation. He is an instructor and evaluator for United Airlines in Denver, Colorado, the number five pilot for the Patriot Jet Team, the only civilian jet demonstration team in North America, and was a stunt pilot in Top Gun Maverick, we're definitely going to talk about this, and the uh, aviation safety supervisor in Mission Impossible 8. He was the Navy's first commanding officer of the only F-35C stealth strike fighter squadron in the U.S. inventory. Scott's accumulated over 6,300 flight hours and 658 carrier-arrested landings on 11 aircraft carriers, He also served during five combat deployments and has flown 91 combat missions supporting Operation Iraqi Freedom. He is also the author of a book called Full Throttle, From the Blue Angels to Hollywood Stunt Pilot. Scott, I can't thank you enough for uh, coming on the show.
0: Thanks, Kyle. I appreciate it. It's great to be here. Yeah.
1: Welcome to Vegas. you know. (laughs) Um, So look, you've you've done a lot of things, and we'll try and cover them all today. You've been involved... let's just say many facets of aviation, serving in the Navy to being a pilot for the Blue Angels, um, what I'll call a blockbuster stunt pilot, right? And uh, also now a book author. What is a, is there even a typical day, but what does a typical day look like for you
0: now? That's a really great question. I can't even say that there is a typical day necessarily. And so uh, my wife is a saint because she allows me to just pivot day in and day out uh, with whatever is taking place. So I told her at the beginning of the week, I said, "Oh, and I'm going out to Nashville, I'm doing a podcast, and I've got a interview with ABC. She's like, wait, what? And, and you're like, don't worry about it. Yeah. Well, she usually just go, okay, well, great. Have a good time. You're
1: doing an interview. You said ABC today? Yeah. What What are you covering in that interview?
0: Well, we're primarily going to talk about uh, excellence and establishing a culture of excellence and driving uh, company and corporate organizations towards being better and executing better. Uh, and I usually talk about the kind of the Blue Angel debrief and how do the Blue Angels drive excellence year in and year out with a 50% Turnover rate. You know, three pilots are brand new to the team each year. Wow! Most people don't know that. Is that is that required?
1: Is there a, a, a maximum time you can serve? And is
0: well, it's it's a shore tour, a recruiting tour, if yeah. you will. I used to go uh, when
1: we were living in Cleveland, and my dad was playing for the Browns. We used to go to the air show every fall, and that was that was the highlight was the Blue
0: Angels. I tell you what, I have memories of flying in Cleveland, uh, right there on the lake, yeah. and. Flying by Cleveland, or the yeah, Brown Cleveland Stadium, the Browns Stadium, that's looking up at the top of the stadium because the pass was so low. I have a very vivid yeah. snapshot of that.
1: Now, so where would you say, and again, no
0: typical day, but
1: if you had to pick one thing, where are you spending most of your time today?
0: Most of my time is spent in Denver and in Colorado. And that's where you live. And that's where I live. I live in Colorado Springs. And so uh, I get up. Uh, From a work perspective, I'll call it my W-2 job at United Mm -hmm. and go train pilots how to fly the 737, evaluate. Uh, One of my passions is the uh, behavior of pilots on the flight deck. We have three generations of pilots flying, so we have grandparents, parents, and Hmm. uh, grandchildren. How do they differ? Oh, significantly, generationally. Yeah. Yeah. And the way that they interact, but when you're—I don't know
1: if I want to know this because if you say, "Well, pilots between you know 30 and 40, they they don't do," it's like next time I get on a commercial flight, I'm gonna I'm gonna notice the age and get nervous. But what what would you say is uh, some of the differences, just height
0: level between the different Uh, generations? I think primarily it's with the phone and the interaction with the phone, and so the uh, older generation, I'll say 50 to 65. They didn't grow up with phones in their hands, mm-hmm. and they got on the flight deck, and it, uh, they uh, understood the ramifications of flying. And, I, and I, I, you said nervous. There's no reason to be nervous on a commercial yeah, airliner. To, yeah. um, but we behave differently. The, I talk about the machine, the environment, and the, and the person. The machines are incredible. We can manage and mitigate the risk with, of the environment with our iPads and the technology that we have. So now it's about you and I flying together professionally and Mm -hmm. interacting uh, in a manner that we can take uh, 300 people from one part of the world to another part of the world, land within 14 minutes of our designated time, and do it professionally. It's unbelievable.
1: The data and information um, that ultimately leads to... Flawless execution is so much better. Right. So, so the younger the younger pilot is, it's really just disconnecting from their phone. disconnecting yeah.
0: from their phone and and letting. That's them... true about everything. You, you, like,
1: we just walk through our sales floor and <laughs> yeah. there are guys out there working on deals and in the middle of a conversation with an owner. Sometimes you'll see them with like their phone in their hand. You're like, what are you What are you doing? You gotta. You, you have to focus. You have to listen. So it is not unique to pilots. What's unique to pilots is, as you said,
0: the ramifications. And the ability to compartmentalize. You've got to compartmentalize for that time while you're in the airplane from, uh, I'll say, pushback to landing. That in many ways is very exciting. I'm not saying it's not exciting.
1: What are some of the other, I'd say, exciting projects you're working on today in addition to training United pilots?
0: So the book has kept me busy through the summer, and I decided to do my MBA uh, at 55, And that was biting off quite a chunk because it's an in-person MBA uh, at Denver University. It's an incredible program, great individuals in the program, uh, but it does take some time. Did the students uh, ever look
1: at you like, what are you doing here?
0: (laughs) They did originally because I look like some of the more tenured professors uh, as my age. But uh, now I recognize their commitment as, you know, 30 and 40 year olds. And I am able to share some of my experiences. That's oh, got to be very valuable, too. That's yeah, great. And I'm going to
1: definitely touch on that as we uh, we
0: will go through kind of your career
1: arc. But I, I will ask the question is, why did you decide to do that? But hold, let's hold on. Sure. To that let's, you know, set the table for the audience. And actually, if you, if you would, just kind of tell us your story, uh, starting with growing up. where did you grow up? What was your family life like? Um, obviously, in what you chose, you, you've you reached the highest heights of your profession, but want to see if there were um, markers or signs early on that you were this uh, driven, accomplished, focused uh, person. Where did you grow up? What was it
0: like? I, I grew up in El Cajon, California. I uh, went to Valhalla High School, and my senior year, my best friend and I saw Top Gun uh, with So many other of our friends in 1886. So it really was the
1: best recruiting movie ever. For sure. Okay. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I can remember sitting in the theater and the music starts and the steam on the of the catapults and I thought, I'm going to do that. That is exhilarating to me. And I used to ride motorcycles in the deserts of Southern California, and so I'm a a bit of an adrenaline junkie. Mm -hmm. And when the movie came out. I thought I wanted to do that, but then I went to Pepperdine and I thought I wanted to be a real estate mole like yourself. No. And um, No, you do something much cooler than I do. And uh, when it came time to graduate, I worked for a firm, KPMG Pete Marwick, and my best friend called and he had his undergraduate pilot training slot in the Air Force and he said, I'm doing it. We said we were going to be fighter pilots and I said, okay, I'll do it too. And I called the Navy recruiter out of the Yellow Pages No, way. and uh, ended up flying in the Navy.
1: That was probably the best time to be a Navy recruiter. It was right after Top Gun.
0: I called him and said, I want to be a fighter pilot. I want to fly airplanes off of ships. And he said, so does everybody. And I said, I think I can do it. Really?
1: And your dad was in the armed forces, right?
0: He was. He was a submariner. Got Uh, Very different experience. Same Navy, different different experience. And I would tell him stories. And he said, I don't think you're in the same Navy that I am in.
1: How how did he, um, how did he, what was his response to you leaving your job and
0: pursuing this, uh, fighter he, he was all for it. I can remember I was dating a gal my freshman year and I remember him telling her, oh, I want got to join the military, uh, before he gets into business. And I remember thinking nah, that's never going to happen. Uh, and it ended up being such a, it, it is a significant part of my life that I wouldn't trade for anything because it a common purpose, common goal, uh, defense of the nation. Uh, it was, it's amazing. But that wasn't
1: necessarily when you were 16, 17, that wasn't necessarily where your head was at. No, not even close. I, tell us, what were you like as a kid?
0: I think that, uh, well, uh, a little if bit I was of... To was ask your
1: dad, what would he say? You
0: know what? Uh, this is what I was like as a kid. Uh, remember the movie Sixteen Candles yeah. and Michael Anthony Hall's yeah. character? That's what I was like as a kid. A, a little bit of a spaz, kind of committed to everything. Uh, wanted to experience it all, did a little bit of student government, uh, was an athlete, played football, was track, pole vaulter, water polo. And I was just kind of, I would say, experimenting because mm-hmm. I wasn't sure where I wanted to commit and what I wanted to do. Um, and so uh, in hindsight, I would say it was a little bit of a spaz. All over the place. Yeah, just all when over. When you
1: did something, would you say you went all in the way you would later in your career? Was that was that already there? Was that something that turned on later?
0: Absolutely. And when I decided to commit to being a pole vaulter, then I was all in on pole vaulting. My just prior to my senior year, I decided that I wanted to play water polo. I don't know where that drive came from, but I went all in on water. Probably polo. Probably some girl you like mentioned. It, she I'm liked sure water that it polo, had right? something to do with the cheerleaders. <laughs> well,
1: that's usually what it is with the young men. It's.
0: Uh, I think. Well, that's, that's why I went think. to Pepperdine. People say, "Why'd you go to Pepperdine?" Pepperdine. Yeah. And I went great. because uh, I used
1: to umpire youth little league on those baseball fields. Oh, right did you really? Yeah, right outside Pepperdine.
0: Yeah, I went to Pepperdine because uh, Brad Dewey's older sister went to Pepperdine. There you go. She was <laughs> yeah. fabulous. It's a, it's
1: a. It, I would argue the prettiest campus in the United States. Yeah, it's incredible. It's it's great. But um, brothers, sisters, grown uh, grown up,
0: older brother, uh, two years older. Uh, I could. I, I honestly credit him with so much of my success because I always wanted to uh, keep up with him physically, yeah. uh, mentally. I wanted to hang out with him. I wanted to be like him. And then
1: he, um, he beat you up, toughened you up a little bit. He
0: beat me up a lot. That's good. Yeah. R- right up until I he was able to compete.
1: <laughs> I also have uh, some brothers that... You know, so I take credit for their success. I said, I used to beat them up. Then one day they got bigger than me. And I was like, all right, we need to stop this. Exactly
0: I, what happened in our family.
1: All right. So El Cajon, this is out right outside San Diego. Yep. High school. uh, Were you a. A great student, a good student, average student, if I, I, if I, if I may ask?
0: I was an average student. Your kids student. are
1: going to listen to this, so make sure your story's consistent with what you told them.
0: My kids know that I am the academic rock in the family. Okay, fair I tell point. them that I have a Ph.D. from the School of Hard Knocks, but uh, academically I was a B student, 3.0. A- Bs get degrees, right? Yeah.
1: And so you played football, you played water polo. Um, I assume you, you felt like, okay, I'm going to go to college and – sounds like you went to Pepperdine because someone's sister went there, but uh, what was that process like? Were there other schools you were looking at or was that just where your your heart was set? I was
0: looking at the UC system mm-hmm. and I knew that I was going to go to school in California and I actually really wanted to go to UCLA. That's where many of my peers were going to school. Uh, I had got, I would applied to San Diego State uh, as well, but Upper Dine accepted me, and it seemed like a great opportunity. So I ended up going there. And what did you study? Uh, accounting. I didn't go there to study accounting. Accounting just made sense to me. Uh, it was it kind of black it. and white, and it, it made sense. I didn't find it difficult. Um, and so I became an accounting major.
1: Later in your career, again, we're going to touch on this, you, you had to have tremendous discipline. You had to make sacrifice over long periods of time to achieve what you did. Um, shoot, the definition of serving in the armed forces is by definition sacrifice for the country, which we very much appreciate. Uh, was Was there something in your childhood that maybe an experience that prepared you for that? Was it Was it something um, Was that a uh, an experience or a decision to sacrifice and have discipline to achieve a goal, no matter how hard or how far it out? Was that something that you uh, you found yourself doing as a kid? Or was, again, that just something that turned on later?
0: I think once I committed to applying to the Navy, I knew that I wanted it really bad. I wanted to be a pilot in the Navy, and I wanted to be a fighter pilot in the Navy. And so I think I blossomed in the Navy. I get a lot of people that say, how did you go from accountant to fighter pilot? Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoyed being an accountant. My, I'm where I was supposed to be as a fighter pilot. And so um, I, once I got into the military, the the discipline of the military and the training of the military, I was very well suited for. And interestingly, it's who you surround yourself with. I had two roommates in primary flight school and we decided that we all wanted to be fighter pilots. And, and, and we,
1: real quick, only cause I don't know. So you enter pilot school But there's different, you could say, I want to be a fighter pilot. I want to be a bomber. Like, what are the different uh, choices you can make when you enter a pilot school?
0: So with the Navy, I went through aviation officer candidate school, uh, got commissioned in late 1991, and went to primary flight training. Out of primary flight training, you can become a helicopter pilot, a fighter pilot, or uh, maritime pilot, which for the Navy would be, uh, in this case, p 8 and hunting submarines in a large transport category aircraft. Okay. Uh, and so the th- two roommates that I had wanted to be fighter pilots also. Um, so we had that commitment as a group, uh, and as a unit. The three of us wanted to – had the same goal. and And I credit both of them with my success – Uh, And I don't know if they would do the same, but one of them went on to command an aircraft carrier. The other one was... And that's because they were pushing you We were pushing each other. Yeah, like a a healthy competition
1: where you were encouraging each other to keep going or do better or prepare more.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, we studied together. Uh, We drove each other. We got up at 4 o'clock in the morning and went to the simulators. Um, And we were competitive, but it was a healthy competition because we were lifting each other up. Yeah. Uh, and of those 3 uh I ended up flying for the blues one was an astronaut and the other was an aircraft carrier commander so it was a you did pretty well so yeah. it's a solid it's a solid uh, draft class right <laughs> yeah, there that was a solid um,
1: draft class. let me take a step back earlier you had described yourself when you were younger kind of a spaz in the sense you were just doing a bunch of different things i don't want to say testing but you were experimenting in terms of what maybe where your passions were your enthusiasms what whether it's water polo or football or riding dirt bikes um but it sounds like, if I'm hearing you correctly, at some point now you saw the movie and that that uh, Top Gun, and that was definitely the introduction to this uh, potential desire to become a fire pilot. But your buddy calls you. You're you know you majored in accounting. You're you're in the business world. Your buddy calls you and said, "I'm going to do this. Are we doing this or not?" Was that the seminal moment where it that? switch of like, I am going to do this turn on, or was it something that was building? Like, what was going through your head at that period of time?
0: Yeah, I, I use the term spaz. In hindsight, I was sampling, Yeah, right? As I'm trying to figure out what my path is. And I think that's a healthy thing, yeah. but I do recall exactly where I was in my post-college room when Bob called and said, I'm doing it. I remember it like it was yesterday. And I remember instantaneously saying, okay, I'm going to do it too. And it was just – it was a light – it happened that fast.
1: Now, your your now wife, Lisa, you were dating though. We were. And was she aware of this?
0: Well, she she was all in. I mean, right? She liked me when I was an accountant. Yeah. Uh, It's all upside from there, right? It's all upside. Um, In fact, uh, she was totally supportive. When I went to go take the test to get into the Navy – uh, she gave me the time to study she supported me in the studying she wrote me nice notes as i went to go take the exams well, i think one of the the big moments if i'm not mistaken i remember reading was
1: and and again you you correct me she handed you a a photo of a blue angel and said you know what go do it or go so, be it. so I had
0: gotten accepted into flight school. I hadn't started flight school yet. I had been a commissioned officer, and for Christmas of '91, she gave me a picture of the Blue Angels over. Uh, it was uh, birds over Point Lobos, and on the back she wrote, "Pursue your dreams," which was quite telling. It was from yeah. foreshadowing because eight years later well, I was she gets, flying for she gets the team. to go
1: home for Thanksgiving and say, you know, I was dating an accountant. Now I'm dating a fighter pilot. I mean, that's a, that's pretty cool. That's right. So good
0: for her. Yeah. But so she was supportive. Unbelievably supportive. Which is a
1: lot, especially because that career choice, even before you get in, you know, again, I didn't do that, but I'm aware that especially with deployment, I mean, there's, we talk about sacrifice. We always talk about the person in the chair you're in sacrificing, but really it's the, the spouse who probably sacrifices the most.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, not to jump too far ahead, yeah, no, but no. both our kids are in the Navy, and they're both in serious relationships, and there's a lot of conversation about what it's like to be a, a Navy spouse. And my That's wife, a great resource for them to have in, in your wife. Yeah, and my wife has told both of them that she didn't know what she was getting into. She just did it, and we made the commitment together, and we worked through it together. You figured yeah. it out? Yeah, we figured it out.
1: Very cool. Yeah, and I'm sure there were well, positive, but also maybe some unpleasant surprises, like, you know, when you – it was deployment eight, nine months when you're getting in that sixth, seventh month, and then it's like, okay, this is a long
0: time. Yeah, saying goodbye on the pier, knowing yeah. you're going to be gone for six months is sucks. really hard. We'll get to that. Um, you com- you you
1: completed your primary flight training, and you selected jets. You said, this is what I want to do. Um one of the things I'd written down in preparation is you like the f the 18 Hornet. Um, how do you pick what jet to fight? And there's different choices, right? So it's
0: hurdles. Okay. And so I made it through the jet hurdle. That's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I, I did well enough to select jets, went down to jet training, and then based on how you do in jet training, now everybody either goes F-18 or F-35, and you could go F-18 Growler. Um, At The time when I selected it was A6s, S3s, F14s, F18s, and F18s at the time were new. And so now the new one is the F35. Is the The F35, yeah. Right. And so uh, I was able to select F18s.
1: And that at the time was the most advanced. I would argue that's probably the most prestigious
0: um, assignment or choice, right?
1: Yeah, it was. You you want to fly the most. The newest model. You it, was a, the newest it was model. a
0: strike fighter, right? I wanted to be a trigger puller, if you will, mm-hmm. and I wanted to be at the tip of the spear, and that's what that was.
1: And so then you go and you get trained on that. Your first operational tour was
0: where? First operational tour was Japan. Japan. In, at Sugi, Japan. So we were kind of the North Korean watchdogs, and we still have four deployed forces over there. Was there ever a moment when you were out
1: there where you thought there might be something happening, or was it generally just kind of— Cruising.
0: You think something could happen all the time, yeah. but the closest we got during that tour, China was shooting missiles over Taiwan, and so the, the United States moved two carriers, the Nimitz and the Independence, on the east side of Taiwan to say, "Okay, now shoot a missile over Taiwan because yeah. our aircraft carriers are here." And
1: that's uh, you know, it's funny. We, we we we're hearing a lot about China and Taiwan now, and there's a lot of concern, but you forget was it, early to mid-90s? Yeah, was. that was
0: 1996, Interesting. and we were out there. And. and so I want to
1: kind of push pause and dive in the psychology. You're a fighter pilot. You're on an aircraft carrier. You're, you're in Japan kind of keeping an eye on North Korea, but now you're next to Taiwan. Is there just like this latent anxiety or fear that any moment now there could be, even if it's an errant missile that hits your ship, and you're like, all right, here we go? Game time.
0: I don't think there's an anxiety because you train and you're ready and you believe so intimately and passionately in the mission and you're with the teammates that you have trained with. And so I don't want to say there's an excitement, but I don't know that there's a fear. Mm -hmm. We are here. We are committed to this. And so we will win, is the mentality of it. Got it. Um, And so you prepare for that. You prepare for victory. So. Well, what about? I just read an article. I think it was this
1: morning about Chinese fighter pilots buzzing U.S. fighter pilots, like getting too close to
0: them. You know, it happens all the time, every day, every day. The Russians are out there. The Chinese the are out there. It's a constant. Do we at least do a back game all the time? Okay, good. And We're so, just the only ones the, yeah, the term "buzzing," it. right? But we yeah. fly next to you're just messing with them. You, you're checking each other out. You flip them the bird. Yeah, every now and yeah, and then. that's a fact.
1: You learn two words in Chinese and Mandarin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Starts <laughs> with, starts with F, ends
0: with U. <laughs> There's a lot of hand gesturing going <laughs> yeah. back and forth. Yeah. So sign,
1: sign language. I'm sure it's. I'm sure it's all in good fun. Um, all right, so uh, you're in Japan. You know, stationed there. Then you went to Iraq in 1996.
0: We went to Iraq in 1996 uh, into the Persian Gulf as part of Operation Southern Watch.
1: And what was, what did you do while you're out there? What was your experience like?
0: So what was interesting? We call it green ink because you use a green pen when you write it into your logbook as combat time, and that's how you log the combat time. And so, and that's different a, than like a. A black pen or
1: a blue pen. Just, yeah. So just for a black
0: a... pen is normal op- day operations. Red okay. pen was nighttime, and green was combat okay, time. Okay. Got it. Uh, so that you could easily identify it in the logbook. Uh, and so here's what I recall about that: you're going into enemy territory uh, in 1996. The probability of something happening because we had already had Desert Storm was pretty limited. Mm-hmm. But you, then you have to be ready. Was it 96 or was it 98 when we we bombed Saddam again? 98. 98. Okay. I don't remember the name of that operation. It was Silver Fox or something along those lines. But, um, you know, we're playing a cat and mouse game. They would drive towards the 32nd, 33rd parallel, whatever we were defending. And they would come towards us and we would come towards them. And then we'd turn around and uh, just testing each other's resolve, seeing if you can get somebody to trip up a little bit. But we are also identifying targets and getting intelligence so that now fast forward to 2003 – and Operation Iraqi Freedom, a lot of the intelligence gathering that we did at that time would have been used for target designation.
1: And when you were out there, did you, you wrote in green a couple times? You had some...
0: In, during that, I, I remember this because it was for that deployment, we, I had 10 combat missions during that deployment. And so um, that was a big deal. And what is,
1: again, assume I know nothing, what is combat? Is it is it firing a, a rocket? Is it just... Is it avoiding it, anti-air? Is it it, it
0: could be any it of those things. It means that you are over or in enemy territory. Got it. And whether you engage the enemy or not or they engage you, doesn't matter. You're over the skies of enemy territory. Interesting. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken,
1: pre-Iraq war, there were parts of the country that we controlled their airspace. Was that
0: I'm trying to log on. There was a northern parallel and a southern southern parallel. parallel. And so we were uh, primarily F 15s out of Incirlik, uh, not Incirlik, uh, Istanbul in Turkey were patrolling the northern uh, area and the Navy was patrolling the south. Uh, And so they had a very thin band, the Iraqi Air Force, that they could operate in. Okay. And how long were you in Iraq? That time it wasn't very long, maybe six weeks. We had taken the aircraft carrier over from Japan through the Indian Ocean to the Persian Gulf uh, to demonstrate that capability and exercise uh, our battle group, the independence battle group.
1: But you And this is part of your total deployment. What's the total time
0: you're deployed?
1: I in a, in a, is it eight months, like it in a time?
0: Six to seven is kind of a common Navy deployment. It can get up into nine and ten months. So this particular deployment was six, six months. Yeah. And
1: so you're gone for six months.
0: How was that
1: at home? And we were talking about it, almost joking about it at breakfast in terms of there were no phones, there was no internet, it was you were writing letters, right? <laughs> yeah. um, we would
0: number the letters, uh, number the envelope yeah. in case they got out of sequence. You it, it, got it, it. you could keep track of where we were in the conversation. How, how was that? Yeah, I mean, it, it's something that you know is going to happen. And so the spouses get very, they rely on each other. They, I'll say they become their own tribe. Um, and they have to rely on each other, and they help each other with kids, and they help each other yeah. uh, as a as a group the same way that when we are deployed, we help each other uh, and support each other. Um, and so we're not separate, but uh, you've got to have that familial unit, if you will, to get through it because you can't go through it independently. No. And so it's hard, but it becomes part of who you are and part of – your relationship.
1: One of the things we talk about on this podcast, I think, a hundred percent of the time, Zach, is sacrifice. And you know, these high achievers, what I call people, whatever they chose to was real estate, it was armed forces, anything in between, uh, to the height of their profession. There's, there's many, many layers of sacrifice. And, and in this case, you and your wife collectively very much so. Um, were there ever times where you felt are you question like, gosh, why am I sacrificing so much
0: to do this? I never did because I was all in, and uh, that's it's what I wanted to do. I don't know that Lisa did either, to tell you the truth. There were hard days, mm-hmm. certainly, um, but I think it made us both very independent and yet supportive. I want to ask a loaded question.
1: No, go ahead. Could you have or would it have been easier or more difficult either or if you had done it Alone, in the sense you, you you had not met Lisa, you had not you were not married, you were just you. Would that have been
0: harder, easier?
1: I know this is a
0: hypothetical, but I, I can't imagine doing it without her. Yeah, um, because our, the way that our relationship evolved over thirty two years is, you know, she's the COO of yeah. the family. Uh, in fact, she's actually the CEO and COO. I'm yeah. the CFO. Um, and yeah. so, no, but she she ran the family and she did a remarkable job. And the best way to describe that, honestly, Kyle, is both our kids went to the Naval Academy and everybody says, oh, Scott, you know, that's great. You were able to help get them in the Naval Academy. And I said, I didn't do anything. I may have inspired their passion to be in the Navy you but Lisa make, you didn't make any calls Lisa right. took them to practice got it she made sure they did their homework she held the standards of excellence at home because I was gone yeah and so Lisa deserves the thanks and the credit and I mean that wholeheartedly mm-hmm. I'm not trying to just give her that in some humble way I mean it no I think, any, I
1: think anyone listening especially those who have children they can draw a straight line there yeah um Part of the reason I bring up the sacrifice and, you know, was it worth it is in, in you know, I I'm in the real estate business and I run a real estate company and in no way does that in any way compare to what you did. But there are young professionals out there, not only in this industry but across the country and they don't have to be young in in age, just maybe even young in, in whatever they've chosen to do, new. And a year, two, three, five years in, it's still really hard. They haven't got to where they want to go yet. And I think so many question like, uh, oh, is it worth it? Or, you know, is the sacrifice going to be worth uh, doing what I want to do as you as you put it, or getting to where I want to go. And and so whenever I have a guest in this chair, I always like to kind of dive into the psychology of how, of were there moments where you're like, oh geez, this is maybe harder than I thought, or do I want it as bad as I thought? Um, and everyone's answer is different. It sounds like your answer is like, no, I knew this is where not only I wanted to be, but
0: where I was meant to be. I remember working really hard for long periods of time, but it kind of goes back to if you're, if you love what you do, is it really work? And so I, I remember there were certainly bad days, but overall, uh, it was a joy. And I get a little uncomfortable when people say, thank you for your service you're like, no, thank you. Yeah, thank you for <laughs> allowing me to serve. Yeah. It was amazing. It was an incredible experience. Great people. And so um, it, I, I had a mentor that would say, uh, the days are long, but the weeks and months fly by. And so when you have those long days, keep putting one foot in front of the other and That's driving towards your goal. It's funny. I I You
1: know, there's, uh, again, a lot of younger people at Matthews, the company, and and a lot of them are entering the phase of their life where they get married and they have kids. And I tell them the same thing. I say, when it comes to kids, the days are long and the years are short. (laughs) So it's a little different iteration, but it's true. Every day is a battle, but then all of a sudden it flies by. We are talking about breakfast, how quickly it flies by. Your kids are, what, 26, 24? Yep. Yeah, it flies by. It goes by so fast. And Uh, so
0: interestingly, uh, as you talk about going through your sales group and they're young and they're they're chomping at the yeah, bit. Right. Are. And it's actually really inspiring it to is, me because yeah. there's so much opportunity for
1: them. I out know. There. I know. And they, yeah, they inspire me. It's ways, it, you talk about, um, people say, thank you for your service. Like, no, thank you. And a lot of, a lot of the guys and gals here were like, Hey, you know, thanks Kyle for the, the words of encouragement or thanks for showing up. And I'm like, no, thank you. I get so much energy yeah. from those guys. Yeah. And, and it, it make it, like you said, it's, a. Uh, if you find something you love to do, it's not work. And I always tell people, I don't love everything that I do, but I love what I do, you know? And so I'm sure similar. And speaking of what you were doing, so you were on the deployment, it was Japan, then Iraq. Uh, At some point you came back and a very big moment in your career, you're selected as a member of the Navy's flight demonstration squadron, the Blue Angels, which everyone's heard of. Sure. Tell us about that moment.
0: So the first year I didn't make it, uh, and but the second year I did. And there's a, a, a fascinating story in there, I think, for your listeners. Uh, but I can recall I was sitting with our youngest son, who was one year old at the time, and he was on the floor, and I had a call in time. And I remember laying on the floor with Nick— when it was my time to call in to find out whether i had been selected or not this is the second year. this is the second okay. year uh and they I, they you know hey scott thanks for calling in and then they welcome you to the team and the whole team how many are on the team oh gosh for the team in its entirety 150 160. Oh, sorry how many pilots uh seven pilots seven.
1: and you said they swap out three or four a year that's right and how many again forgive me just jumping in here how many in any given year are um, applying to to make the team?
0: So there's probably 30 that apply that have the requirements, and then they select six as finalists, and then they'll pick two or three of those each year.
1: Okay. So you're sitting there with your one-year-old Nick? With Nick. He was one at the time. And you make the call?
0: Yeah, I make the call. uh, They kind of mess with you a little bit. That's good. And then they welcome you to the team, and they all yell into the speakerphone and uh, I just remember saying thanks and you know at that moment that it is a pivotal moment that your life yes. has just shifted in direction um and it was pretty exceptional i bet and so that did you have a big celebration that night uh you know i don't recall a big celebration necessarily i just,
1: this is this is um life dreams uh i don't think everyone everyone if I had to guess has a has a a dream a life stream maybe multiple but Oftentimes, even if they accomplish it, it isn't as a how would I say tangible. Right. Your dream, going back to when Lisa handed you a photo of the blue angels, said pursue your dreams. I'm I'm giving you the literal playback of what you told <laughs> yeah, me earlier. Yeah, all right. Yeah. So just you actually achieved the dream you were pursuing. I think a lot of people they may achieve it. It's just it's harder to measure. Does right. that make sense? But yeah, yours is very easy.
0: Did as, you make it or not? As a pure moment, bang. Right, it's I mean, one That phone had call. to have been incredibly satisfying. It was unbelievable. And I just remember laying there with Nick and kind of we were looking at each other and my our, our lives, our, yeah. our family's life, had just pivoted and changed significantly.
1: And so when you say pivot and change, what does that mean? Because clearly there's going to be a different day-to-day or month-to-month, I guess, in your field. Does that mean you're going to get to stay domestic you get to get to stay in the U.S. You're not going to deploy as much. You're not going to deploy as often. Like what? Other than the prestige of just saying, "Hey, I'm a Blue Angel." What? What is that difference?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I I think as a pivotal moment, you I, I had just joined and been welcomed into an organization that operates at a level of excellence that one few people have the opportunity to operate in. Uh, and to equate it to your USC football experience, right? They accept you, you're on the team, and you always get to be a USC football player. I always get to be a blue yeah. angel. and And I, so I'm having a hard time kind of defining what that is. Yeah. Um, they can never take it away from you. They can never take it away from you. And so, in the history of the Blue Angels, there's been maybe two hundred and seventy pilots. A pretty unique group but it's also quite a responsibility they say uh, all humans have a desire to be part
1: of something bigger than themselves and you know it's kind of a concept of tribalism which in a in a tough way leads to conflicts around the world like we're seeing today but but i think everybody wants to be part of a, of something bigger a group or a tribe and then you're talking about one of the most prestigious exclusive tribes um yeah. groups that's ever existed, the Blue Angels. You said, was it 270?
0: Yeah, about 270 pilots on yeah. the team in the 77 year history of the team. And so at the time, everybody, people think that what I would recall is the flying. And what I recall is the, my favorite part of the team is talking to the Make A Wish kids, uh, inspiring others to join the service and the ability to change people's lives based on what I represent that is significant Mm -hmm. and I'm still held to the brand standard because if I do something that uh, doesn't meet what people expect of the blue angels, they will let me know. And so I still have to, it's a responsibility. It is a responsibility. It's a lifelong responsibility.
1: As uh, I think everybody knows is life is not all ups, there's downs. And um, one of the uh, just interesting parts of your story was within a very small period of time, you had this unbelievable high, achieving your dream, the literal achievement of a dream. And then very shortly thereafter, you went through a, a lot of adversity. Um, I think there was a, there was a crash. Your, your mom, do you mind sharing with the audience? No. Um, so, you know, you're sitting there with your one-year-old looking at him, getting the call with so much happiness.
0: And then shortly thereafter, um, there was a tragedy. So 1999, we talked about the joy this pivotal moment of being selected to the blue angels let me go back to june of 1999 we had a crash in the squadron i was in we had a one fatality two airplane or two people in the plane one person ejected safely the student passed away and i knew the student i was the accident investigator for that investigating an accident where you know the individual who lost their life is hard mm-hmm. and that that includes Going to the site. That's going to the site uh, They're in going through the wreckage. I don't want to get into detail, no, but no, I'm sure your yeah. listeners can understand. And so I did that investigation. Now uh, in September uh, or July, I get accepted to the team. They asked me to join the team. I, in September, I joined the team. So now I'm going to be a Blue Angel and I've checked into the squadron. September 99. September 99. Mm-hmm. Uh, October 28, 1999. Uh, We, the Blue Angels lost an aircraft in Valdosta, Georgia, two pilots, Karen O'Connor and Kevin Colling, and they both uh, lost their lives that morning. And was that
1: just like an engine malfunction? No, uh,
0: it's a little bit of a gray area. We think it's what uh, G-excess illusion is what we believe was the causal factor, which is a vestibular issue uh, that has to do with pulling G and angle of bank. Um, And so... Um, or what we would also term a, a G-induced physiological episode. So um, they crash, they perish. And I can remember walking out and seeing the plume of black smoke as it happened, and there's that moment where you know it's bad, and you're hoping and there's this is parachutes.
1: And more or less on the base you're on.
0: That, yeah, we were at Valdosta, Georgia, yes. preparing for the air show during what we call circle and arrival maneuvers. So uh, that, it's horrific. We execute this plan— uh, the, the uh, uh, safety plan, essentially. And so I remember the boss that night calling me into the number one pilot, calling me into his uh, room, and he says, Hey, Scott, I need you to—actually, what he said is, Hey, intake, I need you to be the safety accident investigator. Intake is my call sign. I'm going to ask about that. Yeah, yeah. And, so, uh, and I said, Yeah, boss, I can't do that. I just did it. I mean, it's, a, it's emotionally exhausting. There's got to be somebody else that can do it. I know Kieran. I know Kevin. He said, You're the only person. We need you to do it okay, yes, sir. And so I called my wife that night, and I was pretty emotional about mm-hmm. it because I'm reliving what I had just done with uh, uh, Iggy Aguilera in June. So I'm telling the story too long. So I do it. Now I'm investigating uh, Kieran and Kevin's accident, same scene, and that was October 28th. Uh, we They have a memorial service in Pensacola, that we go back to, uh, we I I have the great honor of delivering Kieran's bo- or uh, Kevin's body to his family, whom I had never met, and I'm in the back of Fat Albert, and there's a draped flag draped coffin. I'm the only person in the back of the airplane, and I just remember the cargo door coming down in Fat Albert, and Kevin's whole family is there, there. and it's me and their son. That was very emotional. Sure. Um, And then we're putting Kevin to rest in Arlington on November 4th, and I get the call that uh, my mother has been diagnosed with a geoblastoma brain tumor. So I rush home, and 20 days later, she passes away from that. So um, I look back on it, and there's so many human factors that are taking place, but one of the abilities that I have is to compartmentalize and focus on each moment as it's happening uh, to get through some of those challenges uh,
1: but not not everyone does and and what do you think um, what do you think it is about you or what advice would you have for a listener who's in the in the middle of pursuing their dreams right but tragedy strikes or adversity hits um, where maybe someone else might have just said, hey, I need to take some time off. I need to stop doing the Blue Angel thing. You know, I just—you've had to investigate two accidents of people you know, then, you know, your mom, but you just kind of—I don't want to say powered through it, but you kept going. Why do you think that is?
0: Well, that's interesting because I don't remember thinking about it at the time, and I just remember taking it in chunks— I need to deal with this accident. I need to investigate it. I need to deal with my mother. I need to put Kevin to rest. I need to put Kira, Kieran to rest. I need to put my mom to rest. I've got to uh, be a dad. I've got to be a husband and I've got to be a blue angel. And so when I, and, and still in my life, I can grieve, uh, I can enjoy an event, but when it, I'm in the moment, mm-hmm. And I'm 100 percent in the moment when that moment takes place, whether I'm flying in an air show or whether I am at home with my wife and kids. Be in that moment. And then when it comes time to move to the next thing, be in that. Yeah, moment. Yeah. I mean, you, you, the word compartmentalize is probably the best way to. Yeah. You kind of put them in their
1: own little separate buckets because if you it's almost like as if you look at them all together, the word I hear a lot in today's society is overwhelmed. You know, and so if you maybe if you look at it all together, it might be overwhelming to someone. But the way you approach it, you just took one thing individually at a time. It sounds like
0: yeah. And I don't know that I get overwhelmed, and I know that people people do. I just don't. Uh, I just keep moving. Again, were you always like that, or is that something? I think I must have always been like it because I don't remember being trained in that. Your dad didn't teach you the word overwhelmed? No, (laughs) no, not that I recall. Um, But it's only in hindsight that I have looked back on, in fact, when I was writing the book, that I thought, wow, that was a very intense time. Um, And I remember a couple of people saying, hey, are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. And we'll just keep pushing forward. So speaking of
1: pushing forward, that was... 1999. So for the next two, three years, you're you're doing the Blue Angel thing, right? Yep. How does that, your Blue Angel, uh, again, correct me if I'm wrong, you're not being actively deployed to combat situations, if there were any at the time, but then September 11th happens. What, what happens to a Blue Angel?
0: And so uh, we had finished our brief. One of the towers had been hit. We assumed that it was a dentist or a doctor who... Didn't understand how to fly the plane. We go out. We get in our airplanes. I was flying Blue Angel number six at the time, and uh, during the time that we had started the airplanes and gone out to the runway, the second tower was hit, and they had shut down the airspace. Yeah. So we taxi back. And as warfighters, fighters, we immediately in during the Korean War, the Blue Angels redesignated as VF-191 Satan's Kittens, and so we immediately went back in. We believe that we are at war, and we started executing a plan to redesignate, paint the blue jets gray, yeah. reinstall the weaponry, and deploy. What, what,
1: what are, were they F-18s? F-18s. Got it. And they just had the weaponry taken off.
0: Yeah, you take the machine gun out, you put a smoke tank in, and so 72 hours to reconvert those fighters into weapons. Is the
1: weight of the machine roughly the, the same. same? Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah, it's the same. So Satan's
1: kittens. Satan's kittens. Satan's kittens. Who comes up with these things? Uh, well, <laughs> They're amazing. But. Yeah.
0: So, interestingly, are, uh, you, are
1: they still referred to as Satan's? Kittens? No, that okay. uh,
0: squadron doesn't exist. Okay, um, but we o- officially, uh, right. right? And uh, so we had still we, to had, each ex- other, is that? we yeah. had expected to uh, deploy a Satan kit, Satan's kittens, and, and the warfighter in us, right? That's what we train for. So mm-hmm. the fact that we're flying airshow or what we would say doing loops to music, um, if when duty calls, you execute. And so we were ready to do that.
1: But that was – it wasn't something that they needed you for at that time. So you continued to do – do you continue to go around the country and do your shows and everything?
0: And so uh, there was no flying for a period of time. So that was September 11th. Our first show back, I believe, was October 13th in Dallas, Texas. And uh, what I remember about that is now – uh, I do my takeoff maneuver, which is a low transition, high performance climb split S, and I'm over. I think it was I-35 in Dallas, and I remember looking down, and the whole freeway was stopped, and everybody had American flags. And yeah. So now we're representing the armed forces, and that was a very dynamic air show uh, because it was the first one that was the back, first one. And, and people people were fired up. Oh, just unbelievable! Yeah, and we just got to represent the millions of uh, armed forces. People.
1: So you did this for a while. I mean, you know, just correct me wrong, ninety nine was your first year and, and really in terms of the Blue Angels,
0: you were there for multiple years. Correct? I left the, I left the team in two thousand two. So I was the number seven pilot in two thousand, the narrator, the VIP pilot, and then uh, two thousand one, number six, and two thousand two. And two
1: thousand two. You stayed in you stayed in the Navy, mm-hmm. all right. And and I'm gonna fast forward was it 2008 or 2009, you did two tours in Af- Afghanistan?
0: Well, so just really quick, so yeah. i about war and Satan's kittens, and we didn't uh, convert the airplanes. We didn't go to war. And then in 2003, uh, I left the team in 2002, and then uh, they sent me over in 2003. So I went from flying upside down in air shows to shock and awe. Uh, okay. Uh, immediately. And got so it. I got to the squadron to train. So that was Iraqi freedom. That was Iraqi freedom. Okay. And so in 2003, uh, I'm off the coast of Cyprus on the USS Roosevelt going into Tikrit, Mosul. And uh, and that was four months after I left the team. And,
1: and I don't, again, uh, it's classified, you can't talk about it, but if it's not, what, what was a typical mission or run like for you?
0: So we were the night carrier. And so we would uh, sleep during the day, we'd get up about eight o'clock. They would serve breakfast at 8 p.m. Uh, we would have breakfast. How's would, the food? We would brief. Not bad. Okay. It's pretty good. good. Uh, and then we would uh, launch at about 11 p.m., go get a hit a tanker over Kyrgyzstan and then turn south into targets into Missoul, northern Baghdad, come back. Re- and so you're launching weaponry into
1: a sp- like a specific building or, it- um, or, or uh, I don't want to say a tank or something, but you're... What are you firing at, generally speaking? At
0: that point, it would depend what the ground forces needed neutralized. And so the uh, entire country was broken up into uh, boxes, uh, 60 miles long, 30 miles wide, and we would uh, turn south. We'd be assigned an area, and then we would talk to joint tactical air controllers on the ground. And whatever they needed neutralized, we
1: would And were you coordinating with someone on the ground who was, you know, pointing a laser at something? Oh,
0: absolutely. Okay. Yeah, so they would, uh, if they were had a troops in contact, engaging uh, forces, or needed a weapons cache destroyed, then we would help them. I think one of the first things we did was take out their
1: anti-air capabilities, but were there moments in your, in your um, and maybe one specifically if you want to talk about, but was there a, a moment or moments when you're flying over Iraq in the middle of a war, it was a war, uh, where... It got, you know, there was a close call or there was a moment where you're like, gosh, like this is pretty hairy.
0: I remember going uh, into, we were headed into northern Baghdad and it was at night. So we had our night vision goggles on. Our night vision goggles, you can actually see all the AAA and the tracer fire. And uh, they would still lock us up with their surface-to-air missile radars, even though they weren't necessarily launching surface-to-air missiles. Um, and so I can recall headed south and you could still see the AAA and they're lighting you up. And... Um, but I don't ever remember necessarily being scared, I just remember being on high alert. That was the uh, real thing. Yeah, because we were in the arena and it was game on. And so it was interesting, as you leave and as you're flying back over Turkey, back to the aircraft carrier, you'd have this great adrenaline dump, you know, and oh. you'd get really tired. I was, yeah. uh, but you still had to go land on a ship so, if, uh sometimes it, it's
1: moving too yeah, uh,
0: it'd be a dynamic four and a, it was either four and a half six or seven and a half hour type of mission, and then you'd get some good sleep though, right yeah, sleep like a baby, I bet,
1: so you did that um that was Iraq, and then again fast forwarding Afghanistan two thousand nine and ten very different theater, i assume, yeah, you, you didn't necessarily have anti
0: air uh tracers or uh, yeah, that was more it. counterinsurgency type yeah. of operations where um they would have to get fired upon, uh, and those were more troops in contact. So the enemy would engage our coalition forces, and then we would get called in, uh, positively identify the enemy, and then neutralize them.
1: Okay. So this was 2009, 2010. 2011, you're, you're back stateside. Back stateside. And now you're running uh, the new F-35
0: program, to put it lightly? Right. Uh, I, I was the uh, director of F-35 for procurement uh, and requirements, so we were still developing what we needed in the F-35, what, that, what the F-35 program looked, at, looked like in 2035, 2040, uh, how many planes do we need, and everything involved in F-35. How is the F-35? It's getting there. It's, yeah, it's been slow, right? It has, I said
1: there was one that went down uh, North Carolina, was it about a month ago? Yeah. And there was a moment there where they they thought they lost it. Yeah. Yeah. Um but yours was yours was unique. Yours was the only stealth fighter squadron, right? Well, so
0: all the F thirty fives are stealth, which is a uh uh ability. It's a defensive countermeasure, meaning the skin of the aircraft can defeat enemy radar. You can't see it. Uh I just happened to lead the first the Navy's first stealth fighter squadron, yeah. which was uh, the first F thirty five unit. Oh, I thought they might have been painted black, like super cool looking like ba- <laughs> Batman's uh, Batman's airplane <laughs> right?
1: um and so, uh, so you're doing that, and 2013 you retire. I did from the navy. From the navy. From the navy, and you joined civilian life. That's uh, yep. a big transition for. I got some buddies um, who spent a significant amount of time in the armed forces, and that's a very, it's a very big deal. Yep. And then some some people struggle with that. Walk walk us through. Why did you decide to formally retire from the Navy and, and that transition?
0: Yeah, so uh, we had been in 22 years. We had done everything that we had wanted to do, um, and it had it was taking a toll. Uh, I was gone a lot. I think of the 22 years I was gone over 11 and a half years. In total? Uh, the kids were getting older. They were in high school, and Lisa and I knew that if we didn't grow roots somewhere with our kids, that we they, they wouldn't come home because they wouldn't have anywhere to come home necessarily. And so uh, we decided to leave the Navy, and we realized that we were actually uh, quite institutionalized at the time. And so, uh, like we talked about at breakfast, I told my wife, I don't know how to make friends. Yeah. Uh, because every unit I went to, every squadron I went to, they'd have a big party for you. Welcome. You got 30 government issued friends you didn't friends. have to choose your friends they were <laughs> yeah, provided to that's you
1: right whether you liked them or not yeah, we, they were your friends yeah
0: we call them government issued friends in the service
1: and so so where did you decide to to put put down roots
0: so our, our favorite tour was in Colorado Springs, so we went back to Colorado Springs. And there's a pretty big community there, right? A l- very large veteran community. And um, I-, I can't imagine going anywhere else. We've lived there 10 years now. We have an incredible group of friends. How old were you kids when you retired? They were 13 and 15. Okay. So um, they're just kind of getting to the teenage high school years. Yeah, going into freshman
1: year and junior year. And when you retired, was it... You know, when people think retired, I think the definition is changing over time. But growing up, I always thought retired was like you're done, you don't work anymore, and you you know you sit around and read books. But what did the first couple of years of retirement look like for you, Elijah? Was it was it just being stay at home dad and driving kids to school every day, or was it immediate pivot to other you know what we call professional pursuits?
0: Yeah, there was a little bit of kind of searching. What am what am I going to do? What does this next chapter look like? And so. I had done some uh, motivational speaking, some consulting with companies um, and then I was working with a firm. I was going to lead an aviation supply company down in Florida, but the family was going to stay in Colorado and we decided not to do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I ended up working with a major airline, uh, which I have enjoyed immensely and it's given me the opportunity to do a lot of other things. And so I would say that in 2013, instead of retiring, that's actually when I started accelerating yeah. Because uh, I was able to do the things that I'm passionate about.
1: But you were also able to, likely, much more so than if you had stayed in the Navy, be there for for your kids' uh,
0: formulative years, to put it like. like it was Dealing a, with
1: teenagers. Was that actually more difficult? Yeah. You're like, maybe I need to get back in the Navy.
0: Yeah, there was – no, there were some challenges. Uh, yeah. And so the hardest part was probably for Lisa having me home full She's time. She's like, you need to go. <laughs> yeah. Like, go, 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 sure. go learn how to golf <laughs> yeah. or something. Discover yourself on a trip. That's right. That's funny. But now, so –
1: uh, again, fast forward, you wrote a book full throttle. Was that something you knew you wanted to do when you left the
0: Navy? To write a book? Yes. Oh, gosh, no. Uh, writing is exceptionally difficult for me. I'm more of a math guy. Uh, my dad always fancied himself a writer. And as I would tell him stories uh, through through my career, he'd, I'd say, you got to write a book. you got to write a book. And so uh, he came down. He's got dementia. And so part of it, after I had filmed Maverick— people kept saying, how did you get to do these things? And so between that and kind of honoring my dad, uh, I decided to put those stories into the book. And, um, but it it was never really a dream of mine to write a book. I'm very happy that I did it. Sure. Um, and, and, and just to let the audience know,
1: not only get yourself a copy, read the book. It's fantastic. It's, 20%
0: 20% of the proceeds go to help veterans. It goes towards the Blue Angels Foundation to yeah. help prevent veteran suicide. That's right. right. Yeah, so that's a, a very good cause. Now, you beat me to the Maverick thing, but we got to
1: talk about it. Sure. All right. Um I grew up in the 80s where there were, uh, you know, Top Gun was the peak of, of them, but there were just movie after movie that really um, – almost ridiculously uh, portrayed American excellence in combat movies, you know, right. obviously Arnold and Stallone were leading the charge there. But, uh, you know, Top Gun was the movie that, you know, again, I didn't, I, I, I didn't follow through on it, but I guarantee you when I watched Top Gun, I was like, I'm going to be a fighter fighter pilot. And it had been a long time. It felt like, yeah. And so when I heard, uh, you know, Top Gun two was coming out, I got pretty excited and Tom Cruise doesn't age. So I was like, okay, this might work. Right. Uh so I I went into that movie and I was really excited because I have, you know, young kids and my son, 12, my daughter's nine. is kind of like that age where they're old enough to really get into it. And uh, I was so excited to take into it, but I had very high expectations. And that, that movie, I'm just telling my personal opinion, beat my expectations. It was a phenomenal movie. It was so well done. How did you end up in that position to... to- what was the position how did you how did you get that i mean i'm sure people would have loved to have been in that position and like tell us about the experience working on a movie set because it's very different than you know flying over iraq in the middle of night being shot at by anti-aircraft missiles
0: right so uh, i had a friend who i was on the blue angels with who asked me if i was interested in flying for the patriot jet team and i said yes and uh, i was asked to fly the number five jet for the patriot jet team the owner of the Patriot Jet Team, Randy Howell, uh, who is a very good friend now, um, put together, put cameras on his jets to try to get the cinematography contract for Top Gun. They they were awarded that contract. When it came time to train the actors and actresses, uh, they asked Randy to train them. And based on my combat experience, Randy asked me if I would come train them and get them ready for the film. Uh, so, Glenn, uh, Glenn, Monica, Jay, uh, Danny, uh, we flew all of them in these jets to get them worked up. How for the did they F-18. do? They did pretty doggone great. Oh, yeah, that's in good. Fact, yeah, I don't remember any of them throwing up at all. Did of uh, even
1: pass out when you when you hit those climbs? Uh,
0: no, <laughs> no, uh, not in the old 39s that we were flying. So that was a great experience, and I thought that was going to be just this remarkable experience, which it was. That was uh, December of eighteen. And then in June of 2019, they needed to film the final fight scene. And Randy called and said, hey, I need someone to fly the final fight scene with me. Will you do it? And I said, yes, absolutely. So, so
1: w- was that f- Where was that filmed?
0: Uh, Northern California. Yeah. Yeah, in the middle fork of the Feather River in Northern California. Uh, so all those granite cliffs yeah, that you see what, at the end yeah. of the movie, yeah, it was just incredible flying. But how many days was that? It was only two weeks, so uh, it was one week up in the mountains flying through the uh, canyons and then a week uh, flying out of Camarillo, uh, Camarillo, sorry, uh, off the Channel Islands for the water scenes, Mm. Um, and it was really intense flying. And to put that in perspective, that's coming from a blue angel. I was going to say that there's a lot of credibility when you say that.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. So those, those scenes were pretty wild, um, in the movie and you assume there's always some cinematic, um, embellishment or that it's not really that, but the way it was filmed and the way it
0: came across on screen, you're like, no, I think they're really doing those things. Oh, we were really doing those things. And so through the canyon, uh, as the chase airplane, you're 30, 40 feet off the ground. You're chasing the other plane. You're moving dynamically because it looks great yeah. on film. Um, but we, uh, the first day that we flew under the helicopter, and the helicopter was at 100 feet, that's when you realize it's, real. uh, it's pretty intense Is the, Does
1: the U.S. Navy, do they cooperate with that film? Like do they let you borrow an aircraft carrier and do those, or are you— Is that something you pay for or are you just using their film
0: no and so all of the f-18 flying and the carrier work was done all with navy pilots and so the work that we did was the final fight scene with the f-14 and the su-57 as we were that was the was that the, the bad it was guys, the very black... end yeah that was the end of the when when yeah. maverick and rooster steal the, F-14. the old fourteen. yeah it's such that, a great scene. yeah that's it's, it's a great so scene fun, yeah. right it's a great storyline and so that was the flying that we did kind of the last eight minutes in that final fight
1: you got it and did you get to oh i have to ask uh did you get to work directly with tom cruise i
0: i did not in maverick which is interesting um, and so we just did that filming none of the actors were there for the part that we had filmed and then uh, fast forward to 2022, Randy called and said, Hey, I've recommended that you be the safety, uh, aviation safety supervisor with Tom for Mission Impossible 8. Uh, Tom's going to call you tomorrow. Uh, Great. I'll be ready for that Zoom call. That's funny. Uh, and so the first time I met him was on a Zoom call. He was over in London at the time. And oh, yeah, we he's... had about a six minute conversation. And he said, uh, We'll see you in South Africa. Sounds great. I'll see you there. And how'd that go? It was awesome. That's very cool. Yeah. He is, uh, he's a remarkable individual. Uh, seems, and he seems like he's got unlimited energy. Un, it's true. Yeah. Uh, in fact, when I came back from South Africa. And he's he
1: very about like doing his own stunts, right? That's oh, his yeah. thing.
0: Yeah, he does his own stunts. To the point
1: where the director's like, no, 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 we don't want you doing
0: this, but he insists. Yeah, so on that six-minute Zoom call, he said, yeah, no, uh, what what you need to do, Scott, is you just have to keep me alive. Great. I can do that. That uh, sounds good. And then when my wife dropped me off at the airport, she said, have fun in South Africa. Don't kill Tom Cruise. Yeah, that, uh, that would not be good. <laughs> so, that's funny. <laughs> um, uh, it's,
1: it's wild how, you know, it's... Uh, Your career arc, all the different places it takes you.
0: Yeah, you know, there's a lot to be learned from Tom, and I equate him to uh, Tom Brady's excellence in the NFL or Michael Jordan's in the NBA. I mean, Tom is at the pinnacle of his profession. And actually, when I came back from South Africa, that's when I committed to the book. That's when I committed to the Blue Angels Foundation and realized that uh, at 55, there's still so much more that I can do. And so... I watched Tom. Is, is that
1: because you, you saw how Tom approached his his career? Just, yeah. And you said, I can do more?
0: He just keeps driving. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he keeps going. And I thought, yeah, I can do more. Um, and so that's what I have decided to do. And, I'm, and uh, I, I don't want to stop.
1: So you are already a, a highly driven person, but you spend time around uh, Tom Cruise. And again, i understanding comparing him to Tom Brady or Michael Jordan, someone at the absolute peak. And... And so one of the takeaways that I'm hearing that perhaps audience can listen to is find a way to surround yourself with other highly driven people. Because even you, after having spent time around them, said, I can be doing more. I can do more. And then that ultimately led
0: you to doing more. Yeah. And that when you see people commit to excellence and you start surrounding yourself with people that are committed to excellence and doing more and being better and, and accelerating. You as a group just accelerate, and you become better.
1: Yeah, it's 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 inspiring. I've I've said this before on the podcast. Like, simply, I I say this very simply: is I always want to be the least motivated person in the room because I want to look around and be like, I got to do more. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So a guy like Tom Cruise, he does a lot. He does. So you spend time around him, and you said, I'm going to do more. That led to a book. You know, that led to being involved in charity. What else has it
0: motivated you to do more of? So uh, we talked about pivotal moments in the time with the Blue Angels. And so when I got asked to join the board, uh, board of directors for the Blue Angels Mm -hmm. Foundation to help prevent veteran suicide, um, uh, a a pivotal moment for me was my oldest son, Wyatt, his Naval Academy roommate, uh, took his own life, Von Solomon. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, I realized that I have a voice and I have the opportunity to do more for good. And so uh, I've done some great things in aviation, but when I am laid to rest at Arlington, if my tombstone says that I helped save veterans' lives, that's all it needs to say, uh, because I'm really passionate about it. Um, And so, I'm doing more. They've asked me to be the president of the Blue Angels Foundation. And so, um, and the brand of the Blue Angels to help raise dollars um, to get the behavioral health needs of our veterans met is important. So at this point in your life, saving veterans lives is your, is your why? That's it. That's
1: exactly right. What was your why when you were 25 and just getting into the Navy? And how has that changed over the years, if it has?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I uh, I, I can honestly, it was probably more about me, Yeah, right? I want to be a fighter pilot. It's about me. What can I achieve? What's in it for me? Um, And uh, the old adage of how many fighter pilots does it take to screw in a light bulb? One, we hold the light bulb and the world revolves around us. Um, And then when you get into command, you realize that uh, it's all about the sailors and the Marines or the airmen and that my job in command was not them supporting me, it was me absolutely supporting them and providing customer service to them uh, in their journey uh, and purpose. Um, And so now my purpose and journey is to continue to serve uh, our veterans, uh, whether it's through transitional housing, Canine Connection. Uh, behavioral health, uh, and the Warrior Care Network.
1: What, what do you think is the biggest challenge for veterans um, that leads to these higher rates of suicide and and other challenges they have? Um, let's call it assimilating back into society. What, what, in your experience,
0: and or where do you spend a lot of time with the charity um, on trying to solve that? So when I speak to organizations, there's two misnomers that I think our general public Um, needs to understand. One, when you leave the service, it's the equivalent of, we talked about USC at breakfast, right? So the USC fans are rabid. They put on their USC jersey and their Mm -hmm. USC hat and they tailgate and somebody scores and there's high fives. And uh, imagine the very next day that same group that you were tailgating with says, hey, give me your jersey, give me your hat. You can't come to the tailgate anymore. And so that's what it's like leaving the service because you have your uniform, which is your jersey and your hat, and that's your team. But when you leave the service, you keep those friends, but you're not in that unit anymore. And there's this period of being lost. And so I would ask people, instead of saying, thank you for your service, which is a very nice gesture, ask, ask a veteran how they're doing. How are you? Do you have your team? Do you have your organization um, in your tribe? because you're not in that tribe anymore. And then the other thing is, why would we give money to the Blue Angels Foundation? Uh, They should be using the VA, and they want to blame the VA. Ask yourself this. Do you want the U.S. government to know all about your physical and mental health? And so there is a a desire for anonymity um, amongst veterans, veterans, especially regarding mental health. And so we provide that anonymity. Um, and and so do so many of the other private organizations that help our veterans. They're not all willing to go into the VA and say, I need mental health help, Uh, nor are our active duty members inclined to go in and say, help me. But if you need help, get it. It's important um, because there's a lot of people that, care about you and what you're doing for our country.
1: One of the things you had you had said was you say yes all the
0: time, all the time, to everything. <laughs> yeah. What did you mean by that? <laughs> to my detriment. Um, I'm experiential and uh, I want to live life to the fullest and so every success that I have had whether it has been being accepted to Pepperdine, KPMG, the Blue Angels, F-35, Combat, uh, the Patriots, Top Gun, uh, it's because I get asked and I say yes to opportunity. And there are so many people that don't. I don't want to apply to the Blue Angels because they'll never accept me. I don't want to uh, try You think to that's be... fear of failure? I, I think it is a fear of failure. Um, and so I tell people, I say yes, and I applied to be an astronaut once. And people said, Scott, you'll never be an astronaut. And I said, well, if I don't apply, they're never going to accept me. They're not gonna pick up the phone and call me out of the blue. Yeah, if you don't apply, you definitely won't be an you, astronaut. You won't be an astronaut, right? And I, and they'd say, well, they're never gonna pick you. Well, I'm already not an astronaut. So all they can do is bring good got news. You got nothing to lose. I got nothing to lose. And guess what? They didn't pick me. I'm not an astronaut. But when I'm 70, 75, 80, I'm going to know that I tried to be an astronaut. There isn't a could have, would have, or should have. I did it. I tried. And some things I have been successful in, others I have not. Would you
1: say your your propensity to say yes is is perhaps, if I'm hearing, is uh, driven by your desire to avoid potential
0: regret down the road? I don't know that it's driven to, to uh, avoid potential regret, but I know that in the end I won't have regret because I pursue the things that I – believe in and that I want to do. And I'm not afraid to fail.
1: You're also not afraid to, um, do crazy things. I, I think, um, you did a week, a seven day, uh, week of adrenaline adventures. Is that, is that, <laughs> yeah. it sounds like it, just going back to when you're a kid riding motorcycles, you were always that. Yeah. And yeah. so talk to us about some of the, uh, adrenaline, uh, rushes or, <laughs> adrenaline, um, activities you've taken, you've, you've participated in
0: anything that creates adrenaline, I am happy to do. And so do you, is that because, uh,
1: you're almost trying to fill that void? You know, when you're a fighter pilot, it's just part of the job, right? But I, my guess is when you stop flying planes over war zones, there is a little bit of a loss of adrenaline. Are you, do you feel like you're trying to fill, fill that, uh, that desire?
0: I, I I don't know that I would put it that way, Kyle. So people will say, "Gosh, after being a fighter pilot, it must be boring flying for a major airline." No, not at all. You land a commercial airliner in a snowstorm in Cleveland with a 30 knot crosswind, and 180 people are expecting you to stick it. Cleveland has phenomenal weather. This isn't. (laughs) I'm just joking. You know that you got to stick that. That's uh, you know that's exhilarating. Uh, I've got a Can Am that I take uh, off road. One of those off road side by sides. It's Awesome. I love driving that thing. Off-road motorcycles, jet skis, uh, sailing, anything that uh, is adventuresome and exhilarating, just it gets me jacked.
1: That Yeah, that is very unique. That's probably something you were born with. Uh, let me ask you, you, as part of being a fighter pilot, as part of the Blue Angels, and just you know, being around a guy like Tom Cruise, for that matter, um, you spent a lot of time not just being a high achiever, but but specifically around highly driven, highly accomplished, high achievement, like really manic humans who just go hard and um, really get to the top of their profession, if I may call it that, is um, what do you think, what has been the common thread or the common trait that separates this group of people from
0: a lot of others? I would say ambition. Um, uh, Probably the desire to achieve and the willingness to fail. And so I have failed uh, in investments, in uh, rental properties, but I have been willing to learn from those mistakes or errors. And there are so many people that are afraid to fail or make mistakes that they limit themselves. And then the other one is asking for help. Uh, If I want to learn about something, I will find an expert in it, or I will ask questions. Um, And the best example of that, I had so many people and sailors that would come to me and say, I want to be a Blue Angel, and I'd say, great. And they'd come to my office and we'd talk about it. We'd come up with a plan on how to maneuver through the application process and recommendations and what they would need to do. Of the hundred or so people that applied to, that wanted to be a Blue Angel, how many of them do you think actually filled out the application? about two. Hmm. And so do you want the fame of being a blue angel or do you want to be a blue angel? And and how willing are you to sacrifice and commit to achieve that goal? Um, and so to anybody, regardless of age, if there's something that you want to do, go do it. Go do it. Conversely, and you touched on this just
1: now, but what, what have been the most common reasons in your opinion that people that you've met who said they were going to go do something or they, they said they had this aspirational goal that they didn't achieve it? You know, what's the biggest reason people don't get to where they want to be in
0: life? Self-doubt. They, they tell themselves no before they try.
1: Why do you think that is? It's like
0: a defense mechanism? I think it probably is a defense mechanism. Because to to,
1: to try for something and to fail is probably hurtful. So it's it, in the short term, it's less hurtful to say, well, I'm just not even going to try
0: it. Right. Um, and so I, they limit themselves. I could never be a firefighter. I could never be a policeman. I could never be successful in commercial real estate. I could never be a fighter pilot. And they, and instead of saying I want, I want to be a fighter pilot, I want to be a fighter, or a firefighter, and committing themselves to that track, and it may or may not work out, but if you give it your all, we talked about this when you were talking about football at USC, right? The losses, you may lose a game, but if you knew you left it all on the field,
1: there's a satisfaction. There's a
0: satisfaction in that, and so I don't have any regrets about not being an astronaut because I tried and I gave it everything I had. And if Elon Musk is listening, I'm still willing to be one.
1: Uh, uh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah, have as many yeah. uh, fighter pilot hours, so, but um, you know, I can uh, I can try.
0: Yeah, I, people limit themselves, um, and and I've, I guess I've just never understood that. Uh, if you have a dream, give it a shot. So
1: so how this this question is piggybacking on that is it's kind of a definition of success question, right? How do you define success? Um, Having gone through what you've gone through, having achieved what you've achieved and really been through what you've been through as well as what you're doing today, how do you you define success? Like, I I was successful in this pursuit. It sounds like it isn't just always becoming the astronaut, like actually doing it, uh, but how, what In terms of someone listening in the audience just saying, okay, I'm afraid to fail, so I might not do this. Well, conversely, there's what if you're successful? How would you define success if you're really going to go after and pursue something?
0: I would define it as happiness. Um, if, if you are a teacher and you're happy being a teacher, then you are a successful uh, person. Um, and so... If you're enjoying what you're doing, regardless of what it is, um, I, I, I think a lot of young people define it as dollars. Mm-hmm. And now at 55, if if you're happy what you're doing and you're to your core you are content, then you are successful in what you are doing. Um, and if you are not content, then go do the things that make you happy and make your life worth living. Yeah. And touching on what you just said earlier, if you give everything you have to it, you'd be shocked at how often
1: you will actually find the material meaning of success, but it, there's just satisfaction, fulfillment, which are key ingredients of happiness. Satisfaction and fulfillment generally is what you get when you give everything you have, Yeah, regardless of the outcome. And again, yeah. it turns out the outcome oftentimes is actually favorable. Right. Right. But it sounds like you gave everything you had, when you said I'm going to be a fighter pilot and your outcome was very much what you wanted. But, um, I think when you give everything to it, if I'm hearing you correctly, it's, uh, you're going to be happy. Uh, obviously you want to be invited into the blue angels one day, or at least the equivalent of whatever the listener's profession is. But, uh, but yeah, it's a, uh, it's interesting. He's saying, Hey, the biggest reason people don't try is fear of failure. Right. Right. And, uh, the biggest reason people achieve success and ultimately happiness is they give everything they have to something.
0: Yeah, and we talked about that with the effort. Yeah. It takes tremendous effort to be successful in what you want to be successful in, and it takes sacrifice, and not every day is going to be unicorns and rainbows. Um, what advice would you have for a younger listener
1: who perhaps, generalizing here, a couple years into their career and they're working really hard. They're working 80, 90 hours a week. I'm, I'm talking like a traditional business setting, but it could be any profession. Um, they're sacrificing. They're, sacri- they're getting in early. They're staying late. They're working the weekends. They're making the sacrifice. No different than your sacrifice spending six, seven months on an aircraft carrier away from your your wife and then eventually kids. But what advice now that you have tremendous perspective, you know, and just I think that's something we get as we get older, right? Uh, to a younger professional who's sacrificing and who may, may be questioning like, is it worth it? Should I really do this? You know, looking back at your career or even other people in other industries you met, what advice would you have for someone who's uh, getting going and um, as it relates to the sacrifice they're going to have to put in to achieve what they want in life?
0: Yeah. Kyle, it's a great question. And I think there's two answers to it. One, you certainly can't do it alone. So it is all about relationships Um, and give, extend a hand, and offer help, uh, but also ask for help and find people that are experts in their profession and ask them how they did it and ask for assistance, ask for guidance, ask for mentorship. and when people give you that advice and guidance, execute on it. And um, a lot of people won't ask.
1: I I always ask. Getting back to not trying fear of failure, do you, do you believe the? Re- I, I've had this conversation with others is the reason people don't ask is fear of, of looking or feeling stupid or something. Like, why wouldn't someone ask for help or ask for a question? Like, why wouldn't somebody do that?
0: I tell people... Um, I get asked for a lot of recommendations, um, and I will always write them um, for people because they're willing to ask and uh, seek my counsel and advice. And I don't know of anybody um, that has experience that get asked for help that will say, no, I am not going to help you. And so we as Human beings want to help people do well and and share our knowledge. And so um, when people want to join the—I'm a blue and gold officer for the Naval Academy. And when people want to get into the Naval Academy, I will absolutely help you get into the Naval Academy. I'm not going to do it for you. I'm not going to do the work for you. But I will help you and I will guide you and I will share my experience to help get you in. Um, But you're the one that has to do the work, just like the people that wanted to be in the Blue Angels. You want to be a Blue Angel? No problem. I'll, I'll tell you how to do it, but I'm not going to do it for you. You're not just—I can't strike a magic wand and make it yeah, happen. Yeah, you'll
1: show them the way. You're just not going to carry them. That's right. They gotta, and so they got
0: to—they got to get there on their own. You've got to put in the effort. Yeah. Uh, the same way that, I'll, uh, the same way that I did. Right. There was tremendous sacrifice. I've never worked as hard as I did in flight school, ever. But that was foundationally what needed to be done. Um, the same way that you're. Uh, sales personnel got here at 6 a.m., right? They're putting in the effort. They're doing the work. That's what they got to do to get to where they They, tell me they want to go in life. Where they want to go. I tell them the first
1: morning you wake up and you say, hey, maybe this isn't necessarily what I want or I'm not willing to put in the work. That's cool, man. There's the door. But if this is what you really want, this is what experience has taught me you need to do. No different than you – in the uh in the navy but specifically the blue angels well scott i'm gonna say it thank you for your service um thank you. i'll ask you offline how you're doing okay right because that I, 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 i'm gonna do that moving forward because we you we do run into veterans especially in the airport like you know you see him and he's always at least for me it's always like oh you always say thank you for their service but next time i'll ask how they're doing yeah um but thank you for being on the show this was phenomenal and it's uh it's 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 uh it's really cool to have a very different industry than, you know, boring real estate or something finance-based. Uh, so uh, very cool. Um, make sure you pick up his book, Full Throttle. Make sure you watch Maverick and Mission Impossible A. Did you get any cameos? No, like, oh, no. come on. You, you know what? <laughs> no, no. Listen, next time— call me, even though I'm not, I don't represent actors, I'll I'll negotiate in uh, that you get at least like a, you know, high five and Tom Cruise on the aircraft carrier. You're right. The, something. Remember right? when him and Iceman and uh, Maverick you know, or, you know, this time is Rooster and, and the other guy. You're right. They they do the flex. You know, you got to be in the background cheering. Right. You know, you get credits. I think you get like royalties for for as long as the movie plays. So we'll work on that off off offline. But I can't, uh, I can't thank you enough, and I appreciate you being here, Scott. And uh, enjoy our, enjoy our town while you're here, and uh, hopefully come back out with Lisa and, and grab a dinner or something. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. Thank Thanks you, you so much. Really, yeah, really yeah, appreciate it. You.
0: Thank you.